And I want to invite you to grab your beverages and come on in and take a seat as we continue with our teaching time together uh, this morning. Well, this summer, uh, many of you know that uh, Meg, my wife and I, and our kids, and a team of 21 spent uh, several weeks serving in Africa. And one of the many challenges of traveling halfway around the world is that literally it is halfway around the world, which makes for some very long flight segments. So, uh, as some of you may be uh, familiar with, and nodding your heads, you know that of which I speak. Now, on those, I think the toughest ones on those are the trans-oceanic flight segments, right? Whether you're doing Pacific, Atlantic, whichever direction you're going. Because you're flying through so many different time zones. And what do you do to pass the time on the long flights? What do you do on a long flight to pass the time? If, if only it were as easy as sleeping on the commercial flights of today. Read. Boy, you guys are much more like, you use your time much better than I do on flights, apparently. What do you, movies. movies! You watch the movies on the plane, just one after the other after the other. And not only that, but you end up watching stupid movies because you're stuck in your seat for such an interminable amount of time. So you watch movies that you would never pay to see at the theater, but because you know, your powers of discernment have turned to mush from sitting for such an extended period of time, you'll just, whatever's on the screen in front of you, you'll just go with it. So uh, on one of our long flights this summer, a movie like this caught my eye. And the movie that caught my eye to was Identity Thief. Now, Meg had said when it came out that we should go and see it because it looked funny. And I had refused. And as is often the case, she was right and I was slightly less right. So in this movie, Identity Thief, uh, Jason Bateman plays a a character by the name of Sandy Patterson. He's a squeaky clean, nice guy, lives in suburbia. He's a paper pusher. He gets a very polite phone call asking him if uh, it's a protection service and could he please share his information with the person at the other end, confirming his name and all of the relevant details and they'll make sure that he's attended to. Well, of course, next thing you know, a character named Don, the character played by Melissa McCarthy, has stolen his identity, has maxed out all of his credit cards, and is living large at his expense. And so the plot of the movie unfolds where the two of them engage in this sort of epic road trip from uh, southern Florida to Colorado, and the real humor in it just comes out of the absolute a disparity between their personalities and between their approach to life. Don is this kind of liberated, completely calloused individual who doesn't care anything for anyone else and therefore follows her uh, in, in any way. She follows every desire wherever it leads her. So if she wants something, she just steals another person's identity, gets another credit card, and gets it. And Sandy is this sort of Uh, top button, always done up, very repressed, middle-class male from suburbia who always says no to short-term goals in the health of himself and those around him. So you can see the, the conflict that that would put the two of them in, obviously aside from all of the other parts of the movie. But we're going to come back to those two individuals in a few minutes. But I want you to kind of retain in your mind that sense of 
uh, duality and that sense of very, very different ideas and ways of approaching life and approaching their desires. So before we get back to them, I want to do a little bit of word association with you. So you're going to shout out the first thing that comes to your mind. Uh, As we get there, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to just sort of think whatever comes into your mind and just shout it out, all right? So the word is holy or holiness. What comes to your mind? Sorry, God. What else? Pure. Sorry? A leaky roof? <laughs> That'd be spelled differently. I'm not a spelling expert, but usually Pastor Keith would tell me I would spell it differently. What else? Set apart. Okay, what else? Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa. Okay, you might have an individual whom you know who embodies that or who you've heard of or read about. What else? Sure. You guys have very positive images of holiness. What about some maybe not as pristine or squeaky images of the word holiness? Pious, all right, that one could maybe go either way. What else? Legalistic, Legalistic? yeah, absolutely. What else? Judgment, Judgment. what else? Holier than thou, thou. absolutely. This This word has been used or manipulated in Christian community to kind of mean certain things and been used then in certain ways. And maybe because of some of that and some of those maybe not as... Uh, clean definitions of the word or associations with the word holiness, it's kind of fallen out of fashion. It's not really something that the Christian community today talks a lot about. And maybe some of those misuses or abuses might actually give us a clue as to why. Well, our fall teaching series is called Identity, and we're looking at seven things that ought to make a person unique if they have claimed to follow Jesus with their lives. That ought to, seven unique characteristics that ought to mark or define people who call themselves Christians. So three weeks ago, we launched into the series and we were talking about integrity, meaning living an integrated life where what I say and how I organize my life and who I am actually is congruent with the way in which both my private world and my public world are experienced by those around me. Then two weeks ago, Pastor Keith walked us through the topic of service, and he was clear to point out that when it comes to service and serving, that it's not at all about getting people to do things or fill slots or any of those things, but that serving others around us, in our community, in our world, in the church, in our families, in our relationships— Serving others comes and arises out of our identity as servants, not as just another thing that we put on our to-do list. And that's an identity that's given to us by our Father in heaven. So today we're going to jump back into the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. And we're going to look at what I think for me is one of the most frustrating verses in the New Testament. So let's look together at 1 Peter, chapter 1. And we're going to begin reading in verse 13. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. So 1 Peter 1.13 says this, So think clearly and exercise self-control. Look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then, but now you must be holy 
in everything that you do, just as God who chose you is holy. For the scriptures say, and this is a quote from Leviticus, from the Old Testament, you must be holy because I am holy, says the Lord. That last phrase, be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy, or the quote from the Old Testament, be holy because I am holy, to me, is the tough and the troubling phrase when I think about my own life. What in the world is holiness? And if those are some of the associations that maybe you and I have with the word in our culture today, maybe the negative ones as well as the the positive ones, that set-apartness, that level of purity, all of those things, you know, do I even want to try to be holy? Could I be holy? I mean, I don't know about you, but I know my own heart well enough to know there's a lot going on in there that's way more interested in following my own desires and thoughts and patterns than it is in being holy. So what does it mean to be holy because God says he is holy? Well, I think thinking correctly about holiness is very important to living our lives with a right sense of expectations of ourselves, of God, and our right ordering in relationship with other people. Because if we think about the word holiness and we get tripped up on some of it, it sounds like maybe piousness, sometimes bordering on maybe like prudishness. Like if you call somebody holy today or somebody says holier than thou, that's not usually a compliment to somebody, although it has been at different points in Christian history. And so it doesn't sound like a lot of fun to us. Sounds like maybe repressing some parts of our personalities or desires that we might actually want to pursue. But, oh, well, God says we should be holy, so that sounds a little bit boring in some ways. And if that's how we think about holiness, then obviously we're not going to pursue it. And so to borrow a uh, phrase from a book title by Kevin DeYoung that there's a truncated or incomplete view of holiness happening, if that's our perspective on it. And so we're missing something. There's a hole in our holiness. And so the question that I want us to talk about a little bit today is what are we missing if there's a hole in our holiness? If we have that view of holiness that's prudish and dour, well, God actually has it as an essential part of his character. We sang about it. It's reflected all through the scriptures. Even the third person of the Trinity is called the Holy Spirit. And so it's an essential and integrated part of God's character. And he's in this text inviting us to participate in it in some way. And so what does that mean for us? Well, let's start there in terms of trying to figure out what does it mean, first of all, before what does it mean that you and I might be called to be holy, what does it mean that God is holy? All through the scriptures, when God is talked about as holy, it's trying to get at the essential nature of his character, not just one of his attributes, but holiness is actually the moral excellence of God that unifies his attributes and is expressed through his actions, setting him apart from all others. In other words, holiness is really the center of who God 
is. It's core to understanding who God is. Many authors would suggest that holiness is the essential or overriding theme of the Old Testament. It's key to how God reveals himself to us as human beings. Somebody over here said holiness has to do with a set-apartness. And God is trying to communicate, one of the many things that he's trying to communicate with us about being holy or God being holy is that he is altogether different and set apart from us as human beings. And so whatever else can be said about holiness, holiness clearly emanates from its source and that is God. Holiness begins with God. It's core to his essence, it's core to his being, and so it's also his initiative to reveal it to us and then in any way or some ways to share it with us. I think that's where we have to start with an understanding of holiness because otherwise we make the mistake that we could wake up one morning and decide to ourselves, you know what, I am going to be holy today. I'm just going to go through the day and it'll be a day when I don't say, do, think anything wrong and that will be, that'll be my orientation towards today. Well, that's a wrong-headed notion because in the scriptures, it says that God actually is the one who initiates and chooses us to be holy. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 10. It says, for God's will was for us to be made holy. We're made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And then in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, it says it this way, Even before he made the world, God loved us, and he chose us in Christ to be holy, without fault in his eyes. So God did that before you did anything in your life, before you were ever created was an initiative of God. So holiness is not something that we choose in that sense of the word. Holiness is something that God chooses to give us as a part of a renewed identity that we receive when we come into his family and come and submit our lives to him. It's not something that we earn as a result of good behavior. Uh, You and I are not holy Because we live obediently, we live obediently because God's will is to make us holy. I'll say it again. I'm not holy because I live obediently. So it's not the byproduct of actions. I live obediently because God's will is to make me holy. God's desire is, His deep desire for my life and your life is that my behavior would reflect the holy character of God himself because I'm part of his family. And as we return to time and time again in this series, actions always flow out of our identity. How we live is a product of who we are, how we think about God and how we relate to the world. And so if we see holiness simply as avoiding bad behavior so that we can get an attaboy or girl from those around us who are morally superior to uh, and acting as morally superior as clearly we are, then we've missed the mark altogether of what God is calling us to. Because we're finding our identity in the wrong place. Our identity 
And the way in which we gain our identity, our true identity is always gained vertically from who God says that I am, not horizontally, from what I do or from what I don't do. Your true identity, if you're a person who has said yes to Jesus, has been gained and is lived in the reality vertically of your relationship of who God says that you are, not attributed to you. You don't find your identity horizontally from the things that you do or the things that you don't do. Because the problem is if you and I are looking to other people to affirm or confirm our holiness, we're looking for affirmation in the wrong places. It is God, this text says, who calls us and who declares us as holy. It is not defined simply by what we do or avoid doing. And this maybe is where holiness has gotten a bit of a bad rap or it's gotten off track through the course of uh, Christian history. Because I think in, in our day and age, holiness has gotten inextricably linked with hiding out or preventing yourself from being tainted by bad influences. And there's actually throughout Christian history been a tug-of-war through different kinds of ways of thinking about holiness. So I'm going to characterize them, and they may not be unfortunate or uh, overly simplistic characterization. So just work with me on that for a minute. The one kind of end of the spectrum is, let's just call it hipster Christianity. So hipster Christianity is where we're not concerned about holiness in the sense of our character being shaped into the image of Christ. We're actually quite concerned about what other people around us in the culture think. And we want to try and make Christianity as cool and hip and as palatable for people as possible. And so we want to try and be as hip as we can. And holiness just sounds dour and sounds like a bunch of stuff you don't want to do. And so we don't tend to lead with it in conversations about Christianity because we want people to like us. And we want to kind of be perceived as sort of generally hip and with it in, in Christian culture and in the wider culture. So that's the one end of the spectrum. Uh, the other end of the spectrum is maybe something more like holy huddle Christianity. So hipster Christianity, holy huddle Christianity. Holy huddle Christianity is where we kind of circle the wagons and we our primary objective is to keep from being tainted by the influences of the bad, nasty world out there. And so we try and figure out ways in which we can avoid contact or being influenced in any way by that. And we try, therefore, to become holy by not touching things that would be tainted in some way. And so often this is a seclusion from culture, separation for the purpose of holiness. So take, for example, in the early church, a guy named St. Simeon, the stylite. Now he lived in the 15th centuries. The stylites have nothing to do with fashion. It's a monastic order, just so you know. Uh, He was renowned for his self-denying spirituality and separation from the world. He would fast for incredible lengths of time. He would stand, just physically stand, for days on end to demonstrate to himself, and maybe just a little bit to others, that he had incredible control over the flesh 
and that he could therefore avoid being tainted by all of those worldly influences. At one point in his life, he fled to the desert and he lived on a small platform on top of a pole in order to be free from the temptations of the world. And he would have his food brought to him when he wasn't fasting, of course. And he lived up there, out in the middle of the desert, in order to be free from the temptation of the world. Now, there's a problem that is built into this type of holiness. And the mistake is that it's actually predicated on the fact that horizontally out there, the world and unbelievers and all that stuff are sinful. And if I can just separate myself from it, I will then be holy. Because I haven't, you know, I grew up in a small town in the BC. There were a long list of things that was kind of fundamentalist, things that you shouldn't do, you know, and the hangover phrase was, we don't smoke, drink or chew or go with girls who do. That was from the 50s and it stayed fairly active in our in that small town culture for a long time so it was defined holiness was defined by the things that you didn't do and the things that you were separate from just like Simeon the stylite up on top of his post but the bible actually though there are verses that would say things to us like come out from among them and be holy says the lord the biblical vision of spirituality is not a spirituality of separation. So the spirituality of separation does not equal holiness in the teachings of Scripture. Holiness is God's initiation. God chooses us, 1 Peter 1.15 says, God who chose you is holy. And therefore, you're invited to participate in his holiness right where we find ourselves in the day-to-day realities of our lives not by retreating to the desert to sit on a pool like St. Simeon. And the reason that this mistake of separation is costly if we buy into it in part or in whole is that it actually has the potential to trick us into missing where the real battlefield and where the real war for holiness is fought. The real battle for holy living is not fought out there somewhere in the culture. The real battlefield for holiness actually is going on inside each one of us. Let's look together at what First Peter says in First Peter 1, 13 and 14. Because the conversation on holiness begins by pointing out that holiness is either continuously growing or shrinking in one of two places in your life and in mine. In my mind or in my desires. So look at verse 13. It sets up this conversation on holiness and the importance of our mind. Peter says, think clearly and exercise self-control. I wonder if part of our problem with holiness is that we have this expectation that somehow God is going to zap us into a state of perfection. And so we get disappointed or angry with ourselves when we still wrestle with the same old besetting sins in our lives day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And we think to ourselves sometimes, man, I wish I was further along in this process of maturity and growth than I was or than I am. 
And I think Peter here is suggesting to us that so long as you and I have neurons firing in our brains, so long as you and I draw breath, we will have the capacity to choose to sin. And so our mind and our exercise of self-control needs to stay sharp. You need to use your God-given faculties for discernment in the exercise of self-control. When you see an image that is sexually provocative and may lead you down an unhealthy path, use your brain. Change the channel. When you feel a pull to give in to that old hurt, that old habit or hang up, whatever that is, talking maliciously about that person who, again, behind their back, did that to you, exercise the self-control necessary to keep from falling back into that old way of living. Peter says, in order to do that, your mind has to stay sharp. You have to use your mind to exercise self-control continuously, which is hard work. And this is where verse 14 talks about the reason why this is so hard work. Such hard work because it's our desires. Look at what verse 14 says. He says, don't live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. It's like ruts when uh, on a road that have been driven on for a long, long period of time. It's so easy. You're trying to pull the car up out of the ruts, but it just wants to go back into those ruts because it's just the most natural thing that's been accustomed to for doing for such a long period of time. Our lives are a lot like that. Our desires are shaped over periods of time in our life through all kinds of our history and our practices and all of those things, and they keep kind of pulling us towards things in our life and experience. And so Peter's saying here, it's so easy to let your desires kind of steer you back into that old pattern of living. I'm indebted here in my thinking to author, Australian author Mark Sayers in his book, The Vertical Self. In it, he describes how powerfully many of us desperately want to move towards the perfect redeemed people that God wants us to be. But we also realize, realistically, we are filled with desires and impulses that take us away from those things, that take us away from our true selves, our identity. And part of the problem lies in the way that we as Christians have talked about or dealt with our desires. We have been encouraged to largely ignore or suppress them, kind of like Sandy Patterson. And so then we're confused because our culture gives us mixed messages about how to deal with our deepest wants, impulses, and desires. And most of those messages are more like that character, Dawn. Just do whatever it is that your desires lead you to. And so I think here's where the characters actually from that movie Identity Thief might help us understand this tension that often occurs in my life, and it may be descriptive in yours as well. Because Sandy Patterson, that button-up shirt guy, represses all of his desires under duty and diligence. And Dawn, the identity thief, gives meaning to her life and lives her life by uh, not suppressing any desire, meeting all of her desires, often at the expense of other people. But when you think about it and play that tape out in your own life 
or in the lives of people that you know, neither response actually works. If you deny or fulfill all of your desires, you end up ripping your soul apart. I think that's what Peter's trying to caution us about here when he says living to satisfy your own desires is an ignorant and foolish way to live. You used to do that when your identity was oriented in a different way. But now you are marked by a new identity, a new approach, a fresh identity. And so your life will reflect a different set of values and ways that you orient around your desires. Another Christian from an earlier era knew well about this tension and how we compete with the competing elements of our desires. His name was Augustine, and he lived in a city in North Africa called Hippo, and he became a Christian at a very early age. And he was uh, from a very wealthy family, and later on in his life, he walked away from his faith. And so he lived between these two extremes for a time. And finally, he simply gave in to, decided, like the book of Ecclesiastes talks about in the Old Testament, I'm just going to give in to any desire that comes my way. And so any temptation that came to him, he indulged it. And he let his desires take over his whole life. He began a long-term sexual relationship with a woman who was not his wife. And he also became addicted to the murderous, violent entertainment and bloodlust in the Roman Colosseum. And when he let that play itself out, he recognized some of the impact that that was having on his soul. And so he actually then moved fully to the other end of the spectrum and in an effort to rid himself of these desires, he became part of a monastic movement called the Manichees and they had a very highly ordered approach to spirituality that would make Ned Flanders look like Hugh Hefner. He sought through this experience to separate himself from the world and all of its desires kind of like St. Simeon did on his pole. But Augustine realized he was caught between these two visions of life. One that encouraged complete abandon to the desires for gratification and the other vision of life that shunned them altogether. And so understanding this about his life, we can maybe relate to his frustration when he writes in his famous book, Confessions, these two wills within me, one old And one new, one the servant of the flesh and the other of the spirit are in conflict and between them they tear my soul apart. I don't know about you, but in a battlefield for holiness, I can identify with that tension. My soul often feels like a battlefield. But if we simply repress or deny desires, they have a way of manifesting themselves in other unhealthy or maladaptive ways. Sayers in his book continues and says, when our desires are put in their proper place under God's sovereignty, impulses and desires can become powerful tools. Yet whenever they're out of balance or out of check, they can cause wanton destruction in our lives. 
Sex can be an uncaring and empty act between two self-loathing individuals or it can be the pinnacle of lifelong commitment that becomes a spiritual act of worship. Food can be used for gluttony or it can be used for spiritual celebration. The drive that we have, our desire as humans to build, to achieve, to create, can bring many blessings into the world. But it can also lead to all kinds of unhealthy things like workaholism. Even ministry and serving God can turn from partnership with God to an act of self-interest and power-mondering and image management. And so I think the bottom line here is that we need to understand that our desires are not evil in themselves, but the way in which they are directed is what makes them evil or holy. When they are directed, our desires are directed only toward ourself, self-fulfillment, self-gratification, self-aggrandizement. Then they are clearly labeled by the Bible as evil or unholy. For example, this morning's momentum journaling reading in James chapter 4 said, when you are taken away by your evil desires and goes on to describe why that desire is evil. And this is why Peter says we have to use our minds to exercise self-control and stay sharp because evil desires war continuously against our souls and our minds. And the scripture says in other places, that's why we need to take captive every thought under obedience to Jesus. And we need to assess what direction fulfilling this desire would lead us in. When you experience a desire in your life and in your heart and you talk about it with someone who is a spiritual friend that can give you wise counsel, ask that question. Is this fulfilling this desire, will it lead to increased self-centeredness or increased holiness? Will it lead further away from who God has created me to be or closer towards that picture of holy living? that God is calling me to participate in. And maybe then we're arriving at a bit closer of an understanding to what holiness looks like in our lives. Holiness is not about pointless or impossible perfectionism. It is about becoming the people that we were meant to be. It is the ultimate discovery of our true selves. And so every step that we take towards holiness brings us closer to becoming who we really are, who God has named us and called us to be. And every step away from holiness causes us to lose more of our sense of self. Be holy because the one who has called you and stamped you with his identity is holy. And so if I'm to live as God's obedient child, he invites me to actively engage in the process of becoming holy. Holiness is God's initiative. It is something that he has stamped, but it also involves intention, your and my active participation in becoming the person that God means and desires for you and I to be. Looking just a further A few verses further ahead in this chapter, Peter says it this way in verse 22. You were cleansed from your sins when you obeyed the word of truth. Positional statement. 
So now, you must show sincere love to each other as brothers and sisters. Love each other deeply. A call to action which would manifest in increasing ways who God has called us to be. In other words, God has declared you, if you're a part of his forever family, you've said yes to Jesus, you have surrendered your life to him, and if that describes you here at some point in in your history, if that is you, you have been cleansed from your sins, and God has declared you positionally holy through the work, through faith in the work of his son Jesus, but now you need to live from that place of transformed identity. You need to submit your mind and your desires to God. Your choices and your desires will then become part of that process of being transformed more and more into the image of Jesus, the son of God. And that's the dynamic that Peter is describing and invites us into in verse 13. He says, look forward to the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. In other words, there is coming a point in history where God, when he reveals himself, will fill everything, the scripture says, with himself in every way. In other words, God's holiness will be pressed down into every single thing that exists and that is. And the path to holiness then in our lifetime involves ridding ourselves of anything, attitudes, relationships, actions, desires, worldviews that will move against or stand in opposition to God's intention for the world. And when we do this, It's not that we earn some kind of gold star in God's good books or in the eyes of other people. We do this because the scripture says one day we will be like him because we will see him as he is. For those who have chosen to put their faith actively in God, one day we will participate fully in his holiness. And so this ought to propel us or pull us forward with hope because one day God's character will fill the whole universe and anything unholy will not participate in this glorious vision of eternity. And so our desire for holiness comes not that we need to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and make ourselves into better people so that when Christ appears on that final day, he can say, you know what, you're doing pretty good. It's that we understand that his deepest desire for us is to reflect his character as a part of his family. Because ultimately, our destiny will be determined by our identity. And so those around us ought to notice whose family we belong to. If you're a part of God's forever family, your desires, your thoughts, your actions ought to increasingly be stamped with the priorities and marked by the priorities of that family that you are a part of and of God's character himself. As C.S. Lewis wrote, The goal to which God is beginning to guide you is absolute perfection. And there is no power in the whole universe except you yourself 
that can prevent him from taking you to that goal. As we close our time together this morning with reflection in song and prayer, I want you to ask that question of your life of family resemblance. How much of God's holiness is manifest in you? What bent are your desires leading you towards in this season of your life? And this might be a time where you just you don't need to sing the words on the screen to these songs. You might just need to spend some time processing that, reflecting on that. If you want to go for a walk around the track and think about that, if you want to stay here, you'd be welcome to do that. If you want to have somebody pray with you and just say, God, I, I want to, in my life, take increasing steps towards holiness. Or if there's something that God's putting his finger on in your life and you say, you know what, I just need to do what the book of James says and confess my sin and just say, you know what, I need help in this area of my life. Would you pray for me that God would begin to redeem this area of desire? My selfish ambition has gotten off track and I just I ask, need to ask that God would redeem that in my life today and I need to forgive, ask for God's forgiveness. Maybe it's something that you need in terms of healing in your own life. We would love to pray for you. Dave and Jackie will be over on this side. I'll be over on this far side and we would love to pray with you during this time of response. I'm going to invite you to stand with me and we're going to sing together as Ruth Ellen and the team leads us and I'm going to pray for us as we move into this time. God, I thank you that your call uh, on our lives is to be holy, but I thank you that we don't do it uh, just by trying harder. I'm wonderfully grateful uh, that your call to us to be holy is a call that you have initiated and that you will fulfill because of your power and authority. And so God, I pray that you would stir up active participation in my heart in that process today. Stir it up in the heart and life of every person here to an increasing way. In the name of Jesus, your son, we pray. Amen.